One of the reasons for the recurring, in our case, at least monthly, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. One of the reasons for that is it takes us back to our roots. Uh, because these elements, a little piece of bread and a little cup of grape juice, represent the body and the blood of Jesus, uh, which he himself ordained as a way of remembering him, what he actually did for us. Uh, he instituted this so we would go back to our roots because, well, as time goes on, many things build around it. A whole system, a religious system builds around it, and that's natural. That's human. But we are periodically to go back to the basis of our relationship with God, which is what Jesus did for us. When we take these elements in, it just reminds us that our relationship with God is very personal. We each take one of these. We don't, I don't take them on your behalf. I don't eat the bread and drink the cup on your behalf. You take one, and you take a little drink. And it reminds us that Jesus really lived, and what we celebrated on Good Friday and Easter is real. 2,000 years Christians have been doing this because Jesus said, do this in perpetuity. We call it an ordinance, meaning something that we do all of the time. And repeatedly, for this reason, Jesus said to do it. All around the world, in fact, people confess their faith in Jesus by this method. In some ways different, but the elements are basically the same. So I would like you to turn in your bulletin to the uh, second page. This is not going to be in the overhead, so you'll need the bulletin for this. The Apostles' Creed, it says on page 3 of your bulletin. The Apostles' Creed dates to the, sec the late 2nd century A.D., Churches began to use this before communion to confess their faith in the core teachings of the New Testament. It is the oldest of the formal creeds and is in use to this day in many denominations, especially those in other parts of the world. And I might say it's a link, a solidarity statement with Christians from centuries past and all over the world. In many parts of the world today, this is used as a way of confessing their faith, particularly before the Lord's Supper. It's less so in American culture these days. I'm a little curious how many of you grew up uh, trained to recite or at least recognize the Apostles' Creed from some church experience in your past. Some of you did. We're going to recite it together and just think solidarity with previous centuries of Christians and think solidarity with Christians all around the world that this is what we believe and this is why we're gathered here. We're going to attempt to do this as a combined recitation all together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Just let me explain the one reference there to the Holy Catholic Church. The word Catholic simply means universal. It doesn't mean Roman Catholic or Greek Orthodox 
or Russian Orthodox, which have the formal name Catholic, as, as do 22 other Catholic denominations in the world today. It simply means the Latin word simply meant the universal church. Whatever the denomination, whatever the style of worship, we believe in the living body of Jesus Christ in the world today. You have in your insert a list of the passages that we will deal with today. We're talking about commandment number seven, the seventh commandment, the most popular one of the Ten Commandments. Actually not. Just a reminder that the Ten Commandments um, represent the rule of law in the Hebrew culture, which is carried on into Judeo-Christian culture, which is what our society is built upon, the Western Judeo-Christian culture. Some people have wondered why all the commandments, the Ten Commandments, are stated in the negative. It doesn't seem like a very positive approach to life and society's order or lifestyle. Well, there's a good reason for that because the commandments are intentionally negative. Um, I'm reminded of this principle. I was reminded of it a few years ago when I read in the news a story about Cuba. Cuba, as you well know, is a communist country. And about five or six years ago, it made the news that Cubans were now permitted to buy television sets, personal television sets. They could now buy them. It was part of an economic exchange, I imagine. But the question that a lot of people, of course, came to mind is, are you telling me they didn't have permission to buy television sets before now? The answer is no. And there's a reason for that. Communism, everything is forbidden except what is permitted. So the negative forms of law which we enjoy in this society, we lots of times complain about how many laws there are, and there are lots of laws. But the fact is, we are permitted to do whatever we want unless it's prohibited. Now, we got that from this. This is a societal structure that God invented that they can behave however they want and enjoy individual freedoms unless it's prohibited. Now, we would like to have fewer laws. There's Old Testament has sometimes guessed at 613 laws. The United States has about 613 million laws. Uh, the, um, the laws of Oregon alone make up way more than the Bible uh, in terms of wording. And, uh, and that is a lot of laws. But the point is still, this is the definition of a free society. Where the laws exist for the purpose of putting limits on human behavior. And it is not understood that the government, that the power, the communal powers, have the right to give permission. They have the right to restrict, but not give permission. That's an entirely different way of looking at life. China, for example, uh, a fifth of the world's population lives in a system in which you have to get permission to do things. You're not free to do what you want unless it's prohibited. You have to get permission. So the next time you think about why are the Ten Commandments all in the negative, it's the foundation of a system of life that was intentionally communicated in its foundational form that said, you live as free people unless 
I, God, says it's bad for your health and for the community and the nation's health, then don't do that. That is a restriction. That is a fence. That is a boundary. Corresponds to the way man was created in the first place. Put in the Garden of Eden, given a job to do, given a beautiful wife, and all kind of things except for one thing. God said, I just said, there's only one thing, one restriction, and that is do not eat from this tree the knowledge of good and evil. That's one thing. It was a restriction. Everything else was freedom. It was intended to be that way because God created us in his own image. We are volitional beings. We are intended to use our minds and our wills and make decisions and then reap consequences, natural consequences. We need our boundaries because we don't know everything. But nevertheless, God's intent for the human being was to live free and with decisions in the consequences that go with them, except where it would be harmful to other people. And these are the boundaries. Now, Commandment number seven is Exodus 20, verse 14. You have references to the pages. You don't need to turn to this one if you want because it's really another one of those two-word commandments. Do not commit adultery. Now, the word adultery itself sort of explains what this is about. Do not adulterate or corrupt what God created in terms of sexuality and its part in the human condition and human life. Uh, this goes back to Genesis chapter 1. Adulterate means to pervert it. Adultery in its most narrow definition means don't be unfaithful in marriage. But the fact is the Bible, like thou shalt not kill, goes on to explain that this involves a great deal of things that have to do with that category of life. And it turns out God intended sexuality to be something that makes marriage work. The nuclear structure of society, the nuclear family, that's what it's designed for. And everything outside of that, there are several other Old Testament laws that you run into in the book of, well, Exodus itself has some of them, uh, that have to do with the subject and they don't have anything to do with marriage per se, but they're nevertheless activities that God did not design sexuality for. That's the basis of the law. It's foundational. Like all of the laws are simply brief statements that can be extrapolated into areas of life that we all live with. Now, you might think that the law is uh, this sort of, we hear this, I hear this quite a bit about puritanical American culture. I don't know what that's supposed to mean. Anybody who's actually studied the Puritans know that they had a fairly healthy approach to this, the subject. It's just that the sexual revolution, Margaret Mead's participation in it and so on, is supposed to mean that our background was somehow puritanical and negative toward this subject. I'm not sure that it's necessarily a negative thing to know that some subjects work best in privacy in the private context. The fact is, the sexual revolution of the 60s, some of you are old enough to remember the whole free love movement and the sexual revolution and all that went with that, has not turned out that well. Actually, it's sort of uh, twisted and shallow in the end. 
because it just has to get more extreme all the time to be entertaining. Because where do you go next? There are some subjects that really do work best in the privacy of your own home. You've heard the expression that what you do in your own bedroom, I think the government should stay out. Well, I think the TV cameras ought to stay out too. That would be nice for a change, wouldn't it? Uh, then this sexual revolution of the 60s did not turn out so good. Historically, it never has. Margaret Mead was an anthropologist who studied the Samoans in the 20s and the 30s and proposed she was quite a hero of the uh, sexual revolution, the hippie movement of the 60s, but turned out she had been a bit bamboozled. Her, she came home saying, oh, these people are totally liberated. It isn't true. Subsequent studies indicated that they have all kind of taboos on sexual behaviors. Uh, every society does. There are 15 countries in the world today in which adultery is a capital offense. We are the ones that are way out there in terms of the anti-puritanical movement, and we always were. The Christian societies have not been that restrictive compared to the other societies in history and the other societies even in the world today. Now, there are some extinct tribes where the theory is they had no restriction on this subject, but the operative word there is extinct. They didn't survive. You can't. This is fundamental to who we are, just like respecting life. Thou shalt not murder is fundamental to who we are, and we can't have society without it. But I want to show you where this started. We've got several passages today, and if we don't get to them all, I won't worry about that. But I want to go clear back to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 2 is on page 2 in your Bible, somewhat logically, since it's the second chapter of the whole Bible. And we will start there with uh, verse 15. This is the Garden of Eden. I should mention here that the second chapter functions in the historical narrative as the zooming in. The first chapter fun functioned as the overview, the historical overview. You see that pattern re recreated in John chapter 1 where the first chapter gives a summary of Jesus' life. And then it goes back and starts at the relevant point, the starting point of the discussion. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it, verse 15. Take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. Verse 18. The Lord God said, It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all of the beasts of the field and all of the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But to Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man... And he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Now, this is a rather 
prosaic um, translation from the Hebrew. What he really said was, who boy, good choice. Good job, God. But this translation works too. Verse 24, for this reason a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. This is the foundational story of the creation moving from the actual creation of the context to the human species. This is us, the man and the woman. This is foundational to it. It goes back to the statement in chapter 1, verse 26. God said, let us make man. So he said, so he created man. Male and female created he them. This is God's intent, original plan. And this is the way nature bears it out as well. In the taxonomy question, this is very fundamental to who we are as human beings. Now the story about God taking the woman and making a woman from a rib might seem a little bit outdated. Uh, but I, have, I remember a story from a, a Native American guy named Sherman Alexi that I thought was kind of interesting. He said a couple years ago he was, he was at a conference of creation stories, uh, created uh, Native American creation stories where they are sharing each other's story. And one of the guys got up there and ridiculed the Christian version of creation and especially this portion of it that uh, the way God created a man and so on, those Christians, they really invaded our space and Sherman Alexi said, I got to thinking of all of the crazy stories about the creation, both of the physical world and a man and a woman. This is about the least crazy. It may seem crazy because it's outside. And he said, well, you know, a turtle sat on a log and lightning struck it. And that's one of the creation stories. And this is uh, Sherman Alexi, a Native American Spokane Indian himself. And, uh, and he said, well, and you're calling this crazy? Actually, it's quite logical. And he said, and by the way, did you hear the one about how lightning struck a pea soup uh, pond and out a one-celled amoeba came out and lightning struck another pea soup pond and a different amoeba came and one whistled at the other one and they got together and they had marriage. How cool. You talk about crazy stories. This is actually makes quite a bit of sense because it matches what you see outside your own front door. It doesn't have to match or agree with what other people say. You look out your door and you see, yeah, man and woman. That's the way God made us. This is the method that God used to create us in such a way that Adam would know that his wife was an equal to him. Didn't take the bone from his foot so he could walk all over her. Didn't take the bone from his head so that she could rule over him and be his boss. Took the bone from the side. And that's why when you're sitting in church, men, and you feel this sharp pain in your side, it may feel like it's your wife's elbow saying, that's you, but it isn't. It's the pain of a missing rib. But the fact is, this is a good story. But it goes on to say, this is a match. This is an attraction match for a reason. 
For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. God created this as a beautiful thing. This is why Jesus quoted this in Matthew chapter 19 when he's talking about divorce and all the issues related to that. And he quotes this as saying this was God's original intent. Whatever happens with the law, whatever happens in the inability to carry it out in the real world, God's original intent. And he says, therefore what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. Those are the words of Jesus based on this passage. This is God's design. Now I think that it is important to recognize that like all of God's design, we screw it up. We don't do it the way he designed. Sometimes one person's at fault. Sometimes another person's at fault. Sometimes both are at fault. We don't do it. That's called sin. That's what sin is in the Bible. Violating God's design. But fixing the problem starts with solving the sin problem. Repentance, change, forgiveness, and moving forward, not backwards. This is God's design. God himself revealed it in that chapter, and Jesus confirmed it. Now one more passage. I want to take you to John chapter 8, verse 1 through 11. And this is found on page 757, if you're using the Pew Bible. Jesus brings up the subject. There's a story here. Jesus doesn't really bring up the subject. But John chapter 8, verse 1 through 11. Well, we start at verse 2. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group. And said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And when he kept on questioning him, when they kept on questioning them, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin... Let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left. And with the woman still standing there, Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Perfect balance here. Jesus introduces grace and forgiveness into the subject. But then he also turns to her and says, go and sin no more. Stop or leave your life of sin. Go and do not do this anymore. In other words, grace or forgiveness, what we celebrate here at communion, is not an excuse or an opportunity to say, oh, well, I can just go keep doing whatever I'm doing that violates God's standards. And it's not Jesus saying, I died on the cross to apologize on behalf of God because God was so grumpy, he gave laws about sexuality and murder and all kinds of things. What an evil God he is. And I am here to tell you that none of those things matter anymore. That might be the fake little Jesus you made up in your mind. 
But that's not the Jesus of this book. Jesus died on the cross for these things so that we could be free from the guilt and the bondage and the slavery and do right now. Do it God's way because it goes better when it's God's way. It goes better because God's the inventor, the designer, and he gave the handbook for us to use in application of these things. Two verses I want to draw your attention to that come from the New Testament that add to this. It's on the back side of your insert, Matthew 5, verse 27 to 28. Jesus here in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Well, and that's a big problem today especially, but I think it always has been, that um, pornography and all kind of ways to get sexual gratification without actually having to do anything you could get caught at, except by God. You're doing the same thing. You just think you're sneaking around. Not going to happen. Because it hurts the soul and it hurts the people. Your imagination is raping or committing adultery with. Jesus' standard is higher. Not lower. But the power to be free of it is higher too. Not lower. Then the Apostle Paul adds to this 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Positive holiness is what the Apostle Paul is bringing to this subject. Positive holiness. The answer to this is not to say, well, this is wrong, that's wrong, and that's wrong. The answer is to say, with the Holy Spirit living in me, my body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. So what I do with it matters. And when you look at it positively rather than just negatively, you've got a mission to accomplish instead of just a lot of boundaries around you saying no, no, no. It's yes, yes, yes for something good, better, more creative, more holy, more pure. And God will be pleased and use it and bless you. Included in your um, insert here, Article 11, uh, from the MB Confession, in case you wonder what our church's position is on these things. I don't want to spend the time on that, reading that. You can read that on your own time. Uh, but let me just draw your attention to five takeaways uh, principles that we can take from this into our daily lives and uh, Monday as well as Sunday. Number one, sexuality is God's invention. His standards are for our own good. The consequences are inherent in the creation. And we talked about that when we were looking at Genesis chapter 2. This is God's design. It's for our own good that we have standards. God is not trying to be a grouch and saying, oh, look, they're having fun. We better have a law about that. Kind of God would be that way. He's saying, here's the way, the boundaries within to enjoy a perfectly good thing. One of the definitions of sin is meeting 
legitimate needs with illegitimate methods. That's the point behind this. God's the one who designed it. He is not giving restrictions against Satan's invention. I think a lot of people uh, are under the impression that they invented sex in the last 10 years. I don't think so. May have invented a variety of perversions about it, but that's not the same as inventing sex. Number two, we give the minority report, so popularity isn't our goal. Offering a cheaper gospel has always been a temptation. And this is something we deal with a lot in our society today. Other societies, they have different issues to deal with. But in our society today, we have to address this. We should speak to it. God has a design. This is the prophetic voice that part of the gospel mission is, salt and light. Not just to go around saying Jesus every third paragraph, but to say what God has in mind for us. To live it, show it, and let it be known. Let our voices be known. God has standards for sexuality, for marriage, and all of these things. And this is a stand that we are privileged to take. Because it benefits the world around us to know that there's an alternative from all of the garbage dump they're getting out of their television and their social media access codes. There's an alternative. And we might be the minority report. Uh, this might be especially true in Oregon. Oregon, uh, like other West Coast states, rather prides themselves in being sort of independent and rebellious. Yeah, if you're 12 years old, maybe. But uh, my experience, Oregon is not all that independent and rebellious. It's actually quite lockstep and obedient to the powers that be. Not a great deal of diversity in this state compared to many of the places that Marjorie and I have lived. Number three, the antidote to perversion is not the opposite extreme, but rather healthy balance and self-control. It isn't true that the Puritans were twisted about sex. Historically, that's not true. But it is true that many Christians have put sexuality and sex in the category of inherently evil. There is a historical strain of that. It's wrong. It's false. It's a perversion of its own kind when you do that. You uh, maybe have heard the expression... That when somebody preaches too much against something, chances are very good that preacher's got a problem with it. That's been borne out in some of the uh, scandals, the public scandals about preachers uh, in the last 25 years. That those with the um, most aggressive fixation on some of these topics turn out to have that as part of their private secretive life. But... The answer to an extreme is not the opposite extreme. A healthy perspective saying this is God's creation. God has a way to deal with it. This is our standard and we're not against it. And we're not for that. We're just for God's method on this subject. The lunatic fringe. You guys are lunatic and perverted. So I'm going to be a lunatic and perverted on the other side. And that will solve the problem. Not the effective way 
to be salt and light in the world or to deal with the problem in our own lives. Number four, there's only one unforgivable sin mentioned in the Bible. God wants our good faith efforts and attitudes. He knows us and loves us anyway. The unforgivable sin that's mentioned in the Bible is one that uh, is a little hard to understand, but it's actually about saying no to the Holy Spirit or using the Holy Spirit in a way that's wrong. There are no other sins in the Bible that are labeled unforgivable. I, I don't care what some sort of religious institution has said about venial sins and those kind of things. Not there in this book. You can be forgiven. You can be forgiven of the twisting of God's standards for marriage and sexuality. God wants to forgive you. But he's not going to forgive you and he can't forgive you unless you call it what it is. Sin. That little three-letter word, sin. I was wrong. I want to be released. I want to be forgiven, is what Jesus is asking us to do. And then we can be. Start over. Fresh start. Number five, holiness is not an experience or a negative discipline, but the exciting prospect of thinking God's thoughts after him, starting in our own hearts and minds. We have an opportunity to uh, introduce disciplines into our lives as a way of controlling our own actions and attitudes. I think it's very honorable when people decide to cut things out of their lives. I know that an alcoholic needs to cut alcohol out of their lives in order to succeed. Uh, if somebody's got a problem with pornography or something like that, I think it's very honorable to say, I'm not even going to watch any TV or have a computer anymore. That's a legitimate approach. But the fact is, those are disciplines that individuals have to apply to themselves. The real strength is in moving forward and serving God and wanting to do something useful, to be free and live free and have an influence and be light and salt, and our own souls feel so much better when we look at the right things, when we do the right things, when we have clean hands and hearts for God. It affects us. It frees us up and takes away the things that drain us in life. It's not a case of you can't do all these things. It's a case of you won't want to do these things. When your walk with God is personal, when Jesus lives in you, and when the Holy Spirit is living in your body as if it's his temple, that's Jesus in us, in the world. And wherever you go, it's that. The church, it's that. It's about Jesus living here, living in you, living in your home. So anything that uh, in your personal life that you would like to give up today, so that Jesus can have free reign inside of your heart and mind, your behaviors, your relationships. That's between you and God. You take the time right now to give it over to him. Worship. Father, we just offer up to you all of the things of our lives that are in the way of a healthy, bright, and effective relationship with you that are in the way of living free, without guilt, living clean, our minds, our hearts, our lives. We give these things up to you, Lord, each of us, 
whatever it might be you're speaking to us about. We're offering ourselves to be instruments of your blessing and your presence, to be temples of the Holy Spirit. Live in us, in Jesus' name.